go ahead and get started, actually. Oh, did you get one, Tim? Well, it's it's alright, it's been given. Uh, it's, okay. it's blank, it doesn't matter. What's blank? No, like, I didn't write anything on it, so, like... Is, is this a handout? Oh, yeah, it's just a handout, yeah. Hey, Trace. Yeah, it's freezing. <laughs> alright, I'll go ahead and pray for us, and then we can go ahead and get started. Father, we thank you for, for loving us. Thank you that you have uh, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to your mercy. We thank you for justifying us and making us uh, heirs with your Son. And Father, help us to think biblically, Lord. We want to think in a way that honors you. We want to think your thoughts after you. And uh, Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us to, um, to understand all of reality through through your revelation to us in your word. And we thank you for Christ, who is the ultimate revelation to us. Help us to to love him more and to want to serve him better. So be honored as we worship you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today uh, we're talking about Christian worldview. (coughs) Christian worldview. And uh, yeah, I think um, it's really just an encouragement to think biblically. An encouragement to think biblically. Um, I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with what a worldview is. It's Pastor Michael explained it he, in uh, the, the email he sent out. He said it's kind of like a lens. It's a lens through which you view the world, worldview, right? And uh, yeah, so what it says here, it's the most basic, comprehensive, foundational beliefs about the world, reality, the set of beliefs that are foundational and formative for human thinking and life. Again, it's a lens. And it's something even deeper than philosophy or science. I think a lot of times we think philosophy will, will get us down to the, the foundations of, of knowledge and truth, or science will get us down to the, the bottom facts. But a worldview is actually the way that we view all the facts. It's a grid through which we, we view really all of reality. That's what a worldview is. And I think a lot of people really are not as self-conscious of their worldview as they ought to be, and I hope to help us to What's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I hope to help us to to learn how to be more self-conscious of our worldview and uh, of the factors that shape our worldview, the factors that shape how we view the world, okay? And I think one... Um, I'm sorry. All right, so uh, to, to give a couple examples of how our worldview kind of maybe shapes the way we interact with the world is perhaps... Let's say the atheist has a worldview and the Christian has a worldview, right? So the atheist will say, because of his worldview, he'll say, I can't believe anything in the Bible because the Bible talks about God creating everything. His worldview doesn't allow him to believe in God, so his worldview automatically leads him to reject scripture. Whereas the Christian, the Christian says, they have a worldview that is shaped by the Bible, and the Bible says that there is a God, and he's revealed himself to us. So... That, that's one kind of very simple example. Another example is, um, let's say your worldview says that only ducks can fly, right? And your worldview says that pigs cannot fly, right? That is going to shape how you interact with the rest of reality. So if you come across a pig that's flying, you're going you're gonna to think to yourself, wait, that contradicts my worldview. That contradicts my lens through which I view reality, and then you're going to reconsider, and then you're going to examine that. But if you saw a duck flying, that's already part of your worldview, and you don't think twice. You won't even think twice. 
So we're going to talk about worldview in that way today. And I think a helpful way to, to talk about worldview is to talk about meta-narrative, to talk about narratives, talk about stories, because I think that's how we, that's how we really understand reality. We understand reality through, through stories. And uh, I mean, think of, think of it this way. Um, you meet someone at church, right? You meet a new person at church. They're maybe like 30 years old. They're like 30 years old. And uh, so you ask them, where do you work? You ask them, where do you work, right? But that's because you're operating within the meta-narrative of someone who's, you're thinking to yourself, someone who's 30 is probably working by now. You understand that? You've talked to a, a, maybe a 19-year-old in, in the suburbs or in middle-class socioeconomic sphere, you'd probably say, where do you go to college, right? But that's because you're operating within a story. And in your story, People, you know, they get to five years old, they go to school, then after they finish high school, they go to college, then they get a job. But that's all assuming that you're working off the same narrative. Okay? Does that make sense? So it's helpful to think of worldview in terms of, of meta-narrative. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at two stories today. We're going to look at two narratives. And I think these are the two narratives that, that shape us. There's There have been tons of stories told about history and, and reality but we're going to look at the biblical story, then we're going to look at the Western story, because that's, that's really a story that shapes us and our experience, the Western story, right? So we're going to look at those two narratives, and we're going to see how they, they shape the way that we view reality, okay? Now, every good worldview, well, if you think about it, worldview, since it's a lens through which we view everything, it's holistic, it covers everything. I think a lot of times we think of Christianity just as it's just a spiritual thing. It's just about me and God. Um, but it's so much more than that. Christianity should inform every single aspect of our lives, not just uh, how to live or how to get into heaven. It's a holistic thing. So like I said here, it, it really has to do with how, we, how man uh, interacts with God, what his relationship is to God, what man's relationship is to man, and what man's relationship is to the rest of the world. And all these meta narratives, all these worldviews have have answers and question have answers to the question of how man should relate to God, how man should relate to man, how man should relate to the world. So so for instance, um, the, the atheist worldview it says man has no relationship to God because there is no God. So every worldview will answer these questions. What is it? What is truth? You know, what does it mean to be truly human? I think that's a really important question, especially for us today. What does it mean to be truly human? And we're going to see how the Western story and how the, the biblical story answers that question. Okay? So I know in the notes we have the biblical story first. But I think I want to do the, the Western story first. This is going to be a very brief, very brief history lesson, okay? And, and it'll be helpful if you just take a look at the notes because, yeah, it, it's just a history lesson. So basically, Western history can be summed up into what, one, two, three, four, about five, five time periods. Okay? So we're going to start all the way back to the classical period. That's the 6th century BC, all the way up maybe to around the 5th century. All right? That's where, uh, you know, Plato, Aristotle... Guys like that, you know, these these heavy philosophers started to begin to to do their thinking, 
And the, the time period is characterized by an attempt to explain the world without myth or divine authority. So what, basically, up until that point, everyone had explained the origins of creation, um, the foundations of, of morality, everything. Everyone had chalked that up to, a, you know, uh, a myth. Everyone's, every every culture has has their mythological story about how the world was started, you know, and maybe Christianity or the Jews had one, and then you know I don't know these other pagan religions had other descriptions of how the world was started, but here in this classical period, Plato and Aristotle, these great thinkers began to to think and try to come up with an origin story that wasn't dependent on divine authority. That wasn't dependent on myths or sagas or anything like that. And this guy, Protagoras, this is what he says. He says, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. And that's really the beginning of the Western story. Where people start to believe that we don't need a divine authority to tell us what is true. We don't need a divine authority to to shade and, and help us interpret reality. We are going to understand and examine it ourselves. Man is the measure of all things, not God. Man is the measure of all things. So people began to trust human reason. This is the beginning of trusting in human reason without any external help. Okay? That's the classical period. Then you get into the medieval period. If you remember your church history, what happens with Constantine? Constantine, he becomes a Christian, right? And Rome becomes a Christian empire. And they pretty much take over... I'm sorry? Over the course of time. Over the course of time. And they pretty much, you have a whole Christendom in the whole Roman Empire, right? So Christianity comes onto the scene and it infiltrates the, the, Western, the Western world with Constantine, right? But, but in this, what happens? The Catholic Church gets big, right? There's a lot of abuses in the medieval church. And at least at a, at a, a lay level... Everyone kind of, they kind of almost stop thinking, almost. That's why a lot of people call it the Dark Ages. And they just trust this authority called the church. Not necessarily trusting God's word and scripture, but they trust whatever the Pope says. The same is still true of the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, you could say that the same is still true of the Roman Catholic Church. Our duty in the Roman Catholic Church is not to believe in God directly, but to believe in Exactly. So what you have here is is still not trust in God. It's trust in man. It's trust in the Pope. It's trust in the church. All right? So what happens? The church begins to abuse their authority, right? Tons of abuse. Indulgences, you know? Here, give me money and, and then I'll try to help you get into heaven. Right? And there's a reaction to this. And the reaction is in the Renaissance and the Reformation. Right? So in the Renaissance... The Renaissance was pretty much an anti-Christian reaction to the Roman Catholic Church. They said, no, we're, we're going to throw off this, this authority of the Catholic Church, and we're going to try to think and think for ourselves. Okay, That's what the Renaissance was. And in the Reformation, you have guys like Calvin and Luther, who we, we would say they were standing upon the truths of Scripture, and they were realizing that the Roman Catholic Church was not, was not in line with Scripture, but other people, like historians, they could say they're just as anti-authoritarian 
they're just as anti-authoritarian as as the Renaissance guys, even though they claim to be Christians as well. Does that make sense? So here's kind of a, a reaction to, to the author, authoritative move of the Catholic Church in the Renaissance and the Reformation. And if you if you think about it, that's going to continue this stream of trusting yourself, trusting your own reason, right? People are casting off authorities and saying, you know, I'm going to think about these issues on my own, and I'm going to come to my own conclusions. Man is the measure of all things, right? And you see that most fully when we come to the 16th to the 20th century, the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, and, and the era of modernity, okay? So you have guys like Copernicus and Kepler, right? So Copernicus was the guy who said, you know, I think the world revolves around the sun. But the church was like, no, no, everything revolves around the earth. But Copernicus was like, no, I think the church, I, I think the the world revolves around the sun. And, and we know that Copernicus was right and the church was wrong. And that cast all of history into a, a, a skepticism toward the church. Maybe we shouldn't trust the church. Maybe we shouldn't trust God, even. Maybe we should trust ourselves and our own observations. We should trust our own observations of what we see in the universe, and maybe that is what's going to tell us what's true. So you see what's happening here? They're beginning to look away from God, away from divine revelation, and they're going to look toward themselves and use their own experience to, to decide what's true. Okay? Interestingly, in the Missouri Synod, Church they were geocentrists until the 1970s. Oh wow, that's really long. <laughs> okay, so but but that's the story. That's the Western story. So who's the hero of the Western story then? When you have guys like Copernicus conquering the the Catholic Church, man becomes the hero of the Western story. <coughs> man becomes the hero, and they begin to think, you know, maybe if we continue to use our reason. If we continue to use science and advance in our technology, we could bring humanity to some kind of utopia. So there's this underlying narrative in the Western story of, of progress. Things are going to get better because we're going to keep thinking and using our reason and using our efforts, and we're going to get to somewhere great, right? But then what happens? A bunch of bad stuff happens, right? We have World War II. We have World War One. You know, we have... I don't know, Look, even look at today. Is the world getting better? In fact, new diseases are coming, right? AIDS. All different kinds of things. Is the world getting better? The world doesn't seem to be getting better, does it? And that's when postmodernism comes in as a reaction to modernity. And postmoderns are like, look at the poverty, look at the messing up of the environment, look at all these people's issues, you know? Even in America, we have so many problems, socioeconomic issues, People struggling with hunger, right? This world is not getting better. Maybe there is no underlying narrative at all. Maybe there is no nar narrative of progress. Maybe this Western story was all a lie. There's no progress. Look at look at us. Look at us. What can we know for certain, right? <coughs> so, so in the modern period, when they use the scientific method to try to arrive at absolute truth, Maybe we can't even know absolute truth. Because that was just a modernistic assumption. Okay, that was just a modernistic assumption. Maybe there's no center at all. Maybe there's no anchor. Okay, and then the result of this is, is consumerism. Like, 
everyone just is for themselves now. Everyone's just trying to do things for themselves. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to get what I want. And I'm going to try not to hurt anyone in the process. But it's all about me. It's all about my freedom. Freedom becomes the ultimate thing in the postmodern world. It's all about being able to do whatever you want. And that's how they define freedom. The, the new definition of freedom, as opposed to being able to do what God wants you to do, freedom in the postmodern area is defined as doing what you want to do. So even this postmodern reaction to modernism is still man-centered. It's still man-centered. It's still, um, yeah, places man as the ultimate measure of all things, Okay. So, so basically, the Western story is a narrative of progress. It says we're moving toward greater freedom and greater prosperity, and we're doing so through human effort by applying science and technology to social, economic, political, educational spheres of life. All right. The postmodernism says is the next chapter of that story, and says actually it doesn't look like we're getting there. Maybe there's no truth at all. Maybe there's no absolute truth at all. So, what are the values in this Western story? The values are the sovereignty and authority of man. He's going to use his reason. He's going to try to get at truth, get at morality, get at facts by himself. Okay. And where does certainty come from in the Western story? Certainty comes by using reason. Certainty comes by using your senses and experiencing things. That's how you know something's true. I see it if my eyes. I believe if my eyes see it. Okay. That's the Western story. But if you think about it, that's only going to lead to skepticism. Right? That's only going to lead to skepticism. And it's basically trusting in who? It's trusting in ourselves. That's the Western story. And I think if, if we're all honest with us, with ourselves, we've all been shaped, at least in some part, by the Western story. You know, And it's not to say that the Western story is all bad. You know, The scientific method, we shouldn't throw that out the window. But is that going to lead us to trust ourselves or should we trust God to tell us what ultimate reality is, to tell us what ultimate truth is? Okay, so that's the Western story. Let's talk about the biblical story. The biblical story is very different. It's also a story of progress, but the progress comes from a different hero, right? So in the biblical story, you have creation, right? You have creation. God creates man. And what you have in Genesis 1 is a creator-creature distinction, okay? So you have a creator, and you have a creature. <coughs> and then this creator, well, first he's I am, right? He just is. He condescends to us to become a creator, and then he speaks revelation to the creature, all right? Now, notice how this is different this is the biblical story. Yes. <laughs> this is the biblical story. This is the Western story. In the biblical story, you have a creator condescending and revealing himself to the creature, right? In the Western story, all you have is the creature. All you have is the creature. So we shouldn't be surprised that in the Western story, there are atheists or agnostics who say, you can't, you can't get to this creator. You can't know. How are they going to get there? The Western story doesn't have the revelation. Oh. They don't have this revelation. All they have is this creaturely sphere. They can't get out of it. They're stuck. 
But the biblical story is a much bigger story. It tells us first there was a creator, then he created the creature, all of creation, and he reveals himself to the creature. Okay? And that's how the creature can know can know the creator. That's how the creature can know truth. That's how the creature can know morality. Everything because they all derive from the creator. Okay? That's the difference. Now in this creation, um, like I said, there still is a trajectory. Like God didn't make, he did make something that was perfect, but he also made something that while being perfect, still he made everything good, right? But he still had a plan for everything to be better than better than good, right? What does he tell them in the cultural mandate? In Genesis one twenty eight, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? And rule over it. Did Adam get there? Adam didn't get there, right? Adam didn't get there. And, um, yeah, I think we're going to skip all these things. But there was a trajectory, and Adam didn't get there. Because why? Because what happened was the fall. Genesis chapter 3. That's the next chapter in the biblical story. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? The creator-creature distinction is distorted. It's broken. Why? Because Adam, what does he want to become like? Adam wants to become like God. He believes the the serpent's lie. The serpent says, if you eat of that tree, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like God. Right? You know what Adam should have said? Adam should have said, but we already are like God. We're made in the image of God. We're already like God. But no, he doesn't say that. He thinks that he can go up here and be just like the Creator. He doesn't understand this picture. Or at least at that point, he he knows this is true, but he suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness And he tries to go and distort this. That's what happens at the fall. The creature tries to be like the creator. Okay? And so this trajectory from good to better, you know, to fill the earth and to to multiply (coughs) and to be a blessing, to fill the earth with the image of the glory of God, is threatened. It's threatened when, when Adam falls. Right? And... And it's not just it's not just man that's cursed. The Bible says the ground is cursed with thorns, and thistles, and sweat and blood, right? And then um, you know Romans chapter eight. What does Romans chapter eight says? Romans chapter eight says all creation it groans, it groans for its adoption as sons. So like I said, this is a worldview thing. It's a whole picture. It's not just about man and God. It's about all of creation. And its creator. So this trajectory is threatened with the fall, right? It seems like we're not going to be able to get there because he failed. He failed. But what happens? What's the next and last chapter of the biblical story? Redemption. Redemption. Genesis chapter 3.15. Right after Adam sins, God curses who? He curses the serpent. And what does he say? What does he say to the serpent? He says, 
there's going to be a son coming from the woman. And his heel... Hey guys. This is our last one, sorry. That's Michael only said five to seven people would be here. <laughs> Genesis chapter 315. What does it say? The curse will be reversed. The curse will be reversed because a son will come from the woman... And his heel will bruise the head of the serpent. Alright? And also, his heel will be bruised by the serpent. What is this talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to defeat the serpent. He's the ultimate seed of the woman. He's the ultimate offspring of the woman. He's going to beat the serpent. But at the same time, his heel will be bruised. There will be a cost to redemption. And we know that happens at the cross. He goes to the cross for us. His heel is bruised. In fact, his feet are pierced. Right? But does he win? He wins because he raises from the grave. Right? And that's the story. That's the story of redemption. Okay? So we have two stories here. The, the biblical story and the Western story. Now, again, in the Western story, who is the hero? Man. Man was the hero because he was going to use his reason and his intellect and he was going to do it all by himself. Okay? But in this biblical story, who's the hero? The hero is God. The hero is Jesus. And so, unlike the Western story that says we should trust who? (coughs) We should trust the hero, which is man. The biblical story says, trust the hero. Trust God. For all things. Okay? So in the biblical story, who's the measure of all things? God is the measure of all things. He's not only the measure of all things, he's the creator of all things. So we have these two competing stories, and these two stories are what, what really, they shape, they shape who we are. They shape everything, everything about how we view the world and how we view reality, okay? So, let's see. see the biblical story. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so like I said, every worldview will talk about how man should relate to God, how God, man should relate to man, and how man should relate to the world. In the, in the Western story, it says man can't relate to God and man and relates to man um, maybe on a, a scale of evolution, you know? Same, same with the world. If you have the power to, to exploit your resources, go ahead and do that and try to make it on your own. But the biblical story says something different. It says man does have a relationship with God. You're either under his wrath or you're under his grace. It says all men are... Are um, sounds good. Are uh, all men are made in the image of God and should relate to each other in that way, and also sees the creation as good. The world is good. God created a good world. Okay, so this should shape our world view. All right. So sorry I did that backwards, but let's go. Let's go back to page the bottom of page two, or I don't know. Maybe it's in. I'm not sure where it is. I have a different notes than you got. We're going to look at which story is the true story. 
Okay. Side. That's the bottom two. Alright, so we just talked about these two stories. The biblical story and the western story. Which story is the true story and how do you know? That's a, that's a difficult question, right? And ultimately, it's a question of authority. It's a question of authority. The question is, who gets to define what? Right? What is the standard of all things? Who gets to define what freedom is? What love is? What marriage is? Who gets to define what sex is? Or morality or justice? Who even gets to talk about God? What is truth? And I want you guys to think about that this morning. Like, what is truth? What makes something true? What makes something true? Think about that. Like, how can you prove something is true? And then if you can prove it's true, how can you prove that that proof is provable? You can't. I don't, I don't know if you can. So what is truth? I mean, maybe someone would say, truth is only that which is scientifically proven, right? But, but again, what is proof? I think the notion of proof is very... Very limited. Alright, think about what is a proof? What is a proof? I think that's very hard to define, right? Something that establishes a conclusion on the basis of, of what? Exactly, which may but or may not be true. Exactly. Which may or may not be true. And how do we determine whether or not they're true? From more basic premises. From more basic premises. And how do we determine if those are true? How do you prove those? I thought I thought in order to prove something, uh-huh. this is like a logical thinking, is that if you can reproduce it. Meaning good, if, good. If I do an experiment, if I publish mm-hmm. a paper, uh-huh. then the other scientist has to do the same thing. Good. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. But let, let's stay on this for now. Proof. Um, no, no, actually, we'll, we'll just take it from there. Well... Yeah, exactly. And I want to talk about both. I want to talk about both. Um, I'm not sure if I was going to talk about it here or later. But, uh, actually, let's just stay here. What is proof? How do you prove something is proof? Maybe some people might say, oh, okay, so you, he said proof is based on certain premises, right? certain premises. But the thing is, it's only proof if everyone agrees on those premises, right? <coughs> it's about persuasion. It's about persuasion, not proof. And again, if if it's about agreeing on premises, if it's about agreeing on certain premises, who's ever going to get 100% consensus? No one, right? Just because just because someone outside says 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4, does that mean that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4? So the question is, does everyone have to agree with it for it to be considered as proof? No. That can't be right. Right? Think about the Roman Colosseum. When they threw Christians to to be devoured by these animals in the Colosseum, the majority said that was fine. They wanted it. But did that make it right? No, it didn't make it right. So it can't be a majority rule. It can't. There has to be something transcendent, right? And then so, let's talk about your inductive, okay? So Jeff says something is considered as proven if you can replicate 
if you can replicate that experience. So let's take cause and effect as an example, okay? Cause and effect. Every effect must have a cause, right? Everyone knows that. Everyone knows. Exactly, that's where I'm going to go. Cause and effect. Everyone thinks that every effect must have a cause, right? And you could probably replicate that, right? In, in, in the lab, you know, you see an effect, oh, I had a cause, you know? But the problem with this inductive method, and what, what I mean by the inductive method is, the inductive method is a method of experience. So you, you observe things, you observe things, and then you say, oh, okay, oh, paper falls if I let go of it midair, okay? And you continue to observe more things, and you inductively learn about paper or about gravity, okay? So in the same way, you observe cause and effect, and that's how you come and arrive at knowledge. But for this to be completely true, wouldn't you have to go through every nook and cranny of the whole universe to know that cause and effect is in fact a universal principle? And who has done that? Who can do that? No one. So, if you don't believe in a God who has created, who has created, cause and effect goes here, not here. If you don't believe in a God who has created cause and effect, then there is a possibility, a chance, that today when you hit the gas, when you, when you have the, the cause of hitting the gas in your car, it won't come to the effect of going. See, cause and effect, it presupposes the God of Scripture. It doesn't work without the God of Scripture. Okay? And that's why the inductive method, it fails us. It fails us in a certain sense. Now, I'm not saying cause and effect isn't legit. I'm not saying that it's not true. But we have to get behind cause and effect. What... What is it that makes cause and effect true? Is it just some abstract principle that just works by chance? Or did someone create cause and effect? Is there an ultimate cause that created the effect? Okay? Um, so that's why I want to talk about what is proof? Like, like uh, our friend Lugi said, Lugi, it's not about proof really, it's about persuasion. Because proof is a loaded term with tons of assumptions that it just assumes way too much what is proof okay um so again if we can't trust ourselves to arrive at truth to arrive at knowledge what do we need we need something outside we need an external authority to speak to us to speak truth to us to reveal things to us okay it's absolutely necessary to have an external authority. Um, yeah, and then you, so, so basically what I'm saying is the Bible is true because God told us it's true. The Bible is true because God told us it's true. And you might be thinking, well, that's circular. That's circular, isn't it? But if you think about it, we always, we always reason in circles. Think about, think about this inductive method again. The inductive method says we we arrive at knowledge by using our senses, right? I sensed and I saw that this paper fell. 
that's how I know it will fall again and again, right? It's a reliability on our senses. But how do you prove that our senses are reliable? With my senses, right? That's the only way to prove that my senses are reliable because I saw it. But that's circular, isn't it? It's circular. The same with the law of non-contradiction. Think about that. The law of non-contradiction, you know, some some people might say, well, you have to have the law of non-contradiction or else everything's reduced to absurdity, right? But absurdity itself implies the law of non-contradiction. It implies the law of non-contradiction. You can't get around circularity. What I want to say, what the Bible says, is that the law of non-contradiction is something that was created by the God who's I am. Right? He didn't say, I am not. He didn't say, I am not. He said, I am. That's where the law of non-contradiction comes from. That's where cause and effect comes from. That's where the reliability of our senses comes from. He created us to have senses to experience the creation. Does that make sense? Someone asks you again, oh, hey, what's up, man? What you doing here? Someone asks you again, which story, which story should we trust? Should we trust the biblical story with the creator-creature distinction? Or should we trust the Western story with just the creature who can't escape that sphere, who has no access to anything else, who can't explain cause and effect, or who can't believe that cause and effect will always work? Which story is better? The biblical story. Which story should we choose? We should choose the biblical story. Okay? Yeah. Mm, we have ten minutes. Um, okay. I was going to talk about the myth of neutrality, but I think I've kind of proven my point that there, there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality. I mean, I think a lot of times we think... Uh, like, 2 plus 2 equals 4, no matter what. No matter what. Whether or not God existed, 2 plus 2 equals 4. But that's not true. What the Bible teaches is that God created 2 plus 2 equals 4. Without God, you have no basis to believe that 2 plus 2 will always equal 4. Every single fact, every single fact in all of creation... Think about what a fact is, right? Something that is absolutely true, right? Everything, every single fact, the fact of gravity, the fact that the sky is blue, is a created fact. It's not a brute, uninterpreted fact. And what I mean by that is, if you think about it, if we look at, if we looked at, look at anything, anything in all of reality, every single fact, it's an interpreted fact. It's not just some abstract, loosely hanging thing with no embedded meaning. Everything is in context. Everything is part of a story. Everything is part of a story. So for example, if I said, uh, it's going to rain today, I mean, that statement has almost no meaning, right? But if you're operating within the story that we're going to have a picnic this afternoon, it's a sad story. But if you're operating within the story that there's a famine in Africa, and I told you there's going to be rain today, It's a happy story. 
right? There's no brute, uninterpreted fact or statement. Everything needs an interpretation. Everything needs a story to interpret its meaning. Does that make sense? So there's no neutrality. You have to be operating in one of these stories. And I want to encourage you, operate in the biblical story. It's the only story that makes sense. It's the only story that makes sense. Okay? Now, like, I just want to ask you, which of these two stories is closer to your worldview? How do you arrive at knowledge and at certainty? Have you been trusting in yourself? Do you only believe the Bible is God's word because, oh, I think the evidence points that way? If you say that, what are you trusting? You're trusting yourself. Now, I'm not saying the evidence doesn't point this way. But ultimately, the question is, are you going to trust what you see? Or are you going to trust what God says? And that's the question of worldview. That's the question of worldview. Are you going to trust what you see? Or are you going to trust what God says? What is the ultimate determiner of reality? God's spoken word or my experience? And if what the Bible teaches is that your experience is because of God's spoken word. He spoke. Let it be, and it was created. Does that make sense? Which of these are closer to your worldview? Which authority will you trust? Which story are you living in? Okay. Now, some practical applications. Now, a, a big reason why I want to give this Sunday school lesson is because there's some statements that I hear um, inside and outside the church that I think are actually unbiblical. But they're, to, be, to be honest, they're statements that I probably thought and made myself. And I want to look at some of these statements, okay? And these are signs that you've been influenced by the Western story and not the biblical story. Okay. So one one statement, this is kind of an older statement that maybe the moderns would say is, you know, they're more atheist back then than there probably are these days. Most people are agnostic, but back then they would say God doesn't exist. Cuz you can't you can't scientific scientifically prove God, right? But but that's wrong. They're operating in the wrong western story. What we can say to them is, well, how can you scientifically prove science? Can you scientifically prove that God doesn't exist? How can you even scientifically prove that scientifically scientifical or scientific proof is legitimate? You need something transcending science. Science is here in the creature. You need something to transcend to tell you. So that that's a way to deconstruct that statement. Another thing I, I hear people say, especially when it comes to politics and stuff, they say. Well, these people aren't Christians, so we shouldn't hold them to to Christian standards. You hear people say that? Like they're not Christians, so we shouldn't hold them to Bible, the Bible standards. But if you understand the biblical story, a non-Christian is not just some some person floating out here. They they've been created by God. They have a relationship with God. It's not a good one. It's a relationship, you know, of wrath. It's a relationship in need of redemption, but they have a relationship with God. They're still accountable to God. So we might not expect that non-Christians don't live according to God's standards, but they're no less accountable. They still have a relationship to God. Okay. 
Um, another statement. Christians should not vote in such a way that imposes biblical standards on the government. And this is similar. But the thing is, the assumption there is that there's some kind of neutral, unbiased morality that kind of floats out there that everyone knows. But if you under if you understand the biblical story, you know that morality comes from who? Morality comes from the Creator. There's no separate morality for non-Christian and for Christian. If the non if the if the Christian morality is not imposed on the government, the non-Christian pseudo unfounded morality will be imposed on the government. It's not some neutral morality. I think a lot of people think, you know, as long as no one gets hurt. But that assumes that everyone knows what, everyone agrees on what it means to get hurt. Right? Or it's okay as long as my rights are not violated, you know? But that assumes that everyone has rights. Right? Everyone has individual rights. But all these things come only in the biblical story. From the Creator. Okay? Another statement I hear people say, people should be free to do whatever they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, I think I just talked about that. <laughs> but but it, it talks about, we're talking about freedom here, right? What does it mean to be truly human? In the Western story, what it, the way we live our lives in our sin, what it means to be truly free, what it means to be truly human is to be able to do whatever we want, right? Whatever our heart desires. That is true freedom, right? The biblical story says you are made to be perfect. That you are made not to live for yourself, but to live unto your Creator. And when sin entered into the world, you lost your freedom. You're no longer free to do what God told you to do. But God has come back and He's brought Christ and He brought regeneration by the Holy Spirit and He's now enabled you to be free. To be truly free. And what it means to be free is not to do whatever you want. True freedom is being able to do what you were made to do. That's what it means to be truly human. So the biblical story offers us another definition of what it means to be human. It puts us in right relationship to our Creator. Because the Western story gives us this definition of being human is just, that's all there is. I just It's just me. I do whatever I want. I do whatever I want. Okay. Um, another, you know, I think, I think a lot of our friends are agnostics. You know, when we talk to them about God, they say, uh, you know, that's good for you. Or, you know, who can, who can know, really? Who can really know? There's some things that works. Like, if I like mango steams and you like strawberries our preferences mm-hmm. may be indeed to yeah, some exactly. between us exactly. but that response mm-hmm. to the gospel presupposes that the gospel is only for some people mm-hmm. and not for yeah. and not addressed to the common nature of yeah. humanity and it also presupposes that you can't know anything right so you have you have your modern Oh, I'm running out of space. You have your moderns, right? Moderns say you can know things. You just have to use your reason. If you think hard enough, you can know with certainty things. Then you have your postmoderns who say, no, you can't know anything. We can't trust what these guys are saying anymore. Look how bad the world has been, right? 
what the gospel says is you can know you can know things but not not through autonomous reason you can know because god told you and but at, at the same time the gospel says there's still the creator creature distinction there's still a, a huge difference between the creator and the creature therefore the creator who can know everything is different than us and we can't know everything so the gospel takes the good from both of these but without <clears throat> distorting the creator creature distinction you see that and the, the gospel is a superior christian worldview because it really it it does it does this for a whole list of things and i have this list at the very end of the, the lecture so one example is god so there's pantheism right pantheism says that god is in everything you know your yin yang the spiritual forces god is just in everything everything all this is god okay and then you have deism deism says that god is way outside of creation he's just out here think of think of it like these two circles but with no lines okay the gospel says god isn't the creature against pantheism but it says god has come down to the creature in revelation actually the creator became like the creature in jesus christ so it's it's better than pantheism it's better than deism right we could do the same thing with um we can do the same thing with morality right you have your legalists on one side you have your antinomian you know you're just prodigal sons on the other side the gospel says that my standards are higher than the legalists but at the same time even someone as far as the antinomian anti-law prodigal son can come home can come home to christ it's better all right let's talk about sex sex you know especially today people say you can have sex with whoever you want and it's always good then you have your old school fundamentalist conservative people who say sex is bad it's always bad like catholic church you know you have to take a vow of celibacy to become a priest sex is completely bad sex is very is always good the christian worldview says god created sex he created it good but he did give definition and 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 uh margins or or lines for us to enjoy sex in the way that god had intended it to be uh, another example is chauvinism feminism it, it understands there's a difference between man and female but it goes to the wrong extreme right the gospel says yes there is a difference between male and female but they're still both made in the image of god so the christian worldview i hope you see is superior it's a better story and i hope you this encourages you to study study the bible let the scripture shape your thinking let the scripture shape your thinking not this western story that so easily comes into our thinking okay um yeah i ran out of time i'm sorry <laughs> we should get going but let me go ahead and pray for us and uh yeah i'll pray for us father we thank you for revealing yourself to us in christ help us to live by that revelation not to trust ourselves not to trust in the creature but to trust in the creator who became like the creature and died for the creature to renew all of creation and to bring us to himself thank you and we pray these things in jesus name amen, amen. amen. thank you huh?